0: I feel like we've got so much clutter in the K-12 world, and I think proportional reasoning has been particularly cluttered when it really is a beautiful chance to just teach students the confidence to rely on their wits and common sense, their thinking, as we've been saying all along. It's a beautiful example of that. It is absolute, absolutely cluttered with jargon, rate, unit rate, constant rate, scale, This goes on and on and on, just common sense. Great chance to teach common sense. So that actually makes me quite angry and sad that we've made, we've taken away a beautiful story by making this three-year experience, at least in the US, grades six, seven, eight chapters that go on and on for something that is really just a beautiful chance to engage in common sense thinking. In and this episode, we
1: speak with James Tanton, kids, mathematician, mathematician at large for the Mathematical for the Association of America, and founder of the Global Math Project, and we're also talking with. Ted Coe, NWEA's Director of Content Advocacy and Design.
2: James and Ted hop on the show today to dig into the collective work of a group of mathematics education leaders that I actually had the pleasure of being involved with on one of the most important yet misunderstood concepts in mathematics education. And friends, you know, we've talked about this idea so much. We've done so much learning for so long on the idea of proportional relationships. Make sure that you're sticking around with us as we dig into these ideas around proportionality and what we can do to help declutter this crucial middle school math concept. Here we go. (sighs) to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast.
1: I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are from MakingMathMoments.com. And together
2: with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense-making, and ignite your teacher moves. My friends, math moment makers, we are so excited to welcome on two awesome, awesome math educators from That inspire all over the place here. We've got James returning. This is his third time on the episode. He claims it's only two and a half, though, because he's joined today with Ted Coe, one of our colleagues and a co presenter that I've had the pleasure of presenting with on this concept of proportional relationships. We're so excited to dive into this concept to get into the muddy waters and start to declutter. John, What are your thoughts here as we enter this episode?
1: Yeah, it was a great conversation and lots to take away. I especially love this idea of the decluttering mathematics. James explains it so well, and I can't wait for you to
2: hear it. So, uh, hey, let's get right to it. Here we go. Hey, hey there, James and Ted. Thanks for joining us here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. It's been a long time coming. But maybe not so long for half of you. I mean, James, I think you are now going to be taking the crown for the third time. But you'd like to argue because Ted's with you. It's only two and a half times. How are you both doing, my friends?
0: So, Ted, how are we both doing? You answered that question. (laughs) I'm doing fantastically well. How about you, James? All is good and grand and here in sunny Arizona. Well, it's evening now, so the sun's going down. But beautiful, warm, sunny Arizona in the middle of the winter. Yes. Oh it's good. Uh, Yeah,
1: he's rubbing it in. He's, we're always jealous about these warm weather guests who come on here and flaunt this hotness in front of our cold spaces here up here in Canada. Shameless I am. Awesome stuff, guys. We've chatted with James on the podcast, oh, back in episode six, which is one of the first and episode 45 Ted, why don't you fill us in a little bit and tell us a little bit of your backstory. Like if you're a listener right now and you're like, wait a minute, why'd you just skip past James? Hey, take a moment, go and listen to episode six, go and listen to episode 45, get yourself filled in, then come on back to us. Ted's going to fill us in on what's your role in education? How long have you been in the field of education and
3: what's that journey kind of look like for you? Oh, well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited about this. I've been playing in this math education game for over 25 years now, and I started off as a high school math teacher and loved that. It was just a highlight of a career, right? From there, I went to work in the community college system in the Maricopa Community Colleges in the Phoenix area, and I was a math professor there, the chair at two different colleges. I even did a little time as an assistant dean at a university. Then I went over and for the, you know, prior to where I'm at now, which I'll get to, but then I went over to Achieve, which was a Washington DC based education policy reform organization. I was the director of mathematics there for a while and I got to see things happening all around the country, the continent. It was just fantastic. And for the past year and a half, almost two years now, I'm the director of content advocacy and design at NWEA based in Portland, where I get to just like my title says, advocate for content. And it's just a great thing to do. So that's sort of how I got to where I am, the kinds of experiences that I've had along the way. And uh, we'll talk about more as the hour goes on, I'm sure. So I love it. And it's interesting because I actually didn't realize, but in this
2: moment, I'm now realizing you and James sort of have almost like the opposite. like You're like inverse experiences where if I recall from episode six and episode 45, James, you began more in that post-secondary world and then sort of came into the secondary world, if I recall correctly.
0: And Ted... The opposite. Absolutely. Just call me an inverse kind of guy. Absolutely. I do things backwards all the time.
3: Yes. But James, you and I first met, I was at Achieve, and you were with MAA still at that point. And you were just moving. Our offices in D.C. were like a couple of blocks from each other. And then you end up moving to Phoenix, and now we live just more than a few blocks from each other. So...
0: What can we say? The whole destiny thing's going on here.
1: Yeah, it is uh, destined to be close to each other.
0: Yeah, and I'm actually, I do need
2: to know this because I didn't ask you before we hit record, but last time we all presented together, you two gentlemen were doing magic tricks where Ted's arm would show up on James's camera and really freaking people out, which is that possible here today or is that not a possibility given... My arm is not like two or
3: three miles long. Oh, look at that. I can only do a one screen
2: version. I love it. That's fantastic. Once again, promoting why you should be watching this on YouTube, my friends. James just did a magic trick and you only get to see if you go check out the YouTube channel. All right, let's keep moving this thing along here, my friends. We are going to spend a little... Sorry, James. We're going to spend a little more time with Ted here because we are going to flip this one to ted we always ask our guests about their math moments and my friends definitely go back check out james's math moments but ted i'm curious when you hear math class what sort of math moment pops into your mind that you might be willing to share with the audience today
3: well obviously lots there's lots of experiences probably let me go back to maybe the earliest that was sort of perhaps a bit formative in my space. And that was an episode in eighth grade. And I went to a smaller school where there was one class per grade and we were learning eighth grade math. And we were doing something, I don't remember what it was. I think it was like dividing fractions. Favorite topic of most young children. There was a worksheet and they taught me how to divide the fractions. And I had thought that I had come up with a better way to do it. I'll put a little thinking into it. This is clever. I'm going to do this. And I proceeded to get all of them wrong on that (laughs) worksheet. Yeah. And then not only was that humiliating enough, but then I had to stay in during recess to fix it. Right. And so it's like, well, that's an interesting consequence for trying to be creative with your mathematics. And, you know, the pushback or the correction wasn't to like talk through what was cool about what I was doing or not cool about what I was doing. Right. It wasn't about the thinking that went into it. It was about, well, you're doing it wrong. And so go do it right. And it ties into my framing that whenever I talk about mathematics, teaching and learning in sort of a situation where anybody will listen to me. I say, after all this time that I've spent in this business and in this world, I like to point back to three things that need to be a part of math, teaching and learning. And one is that we do have the ways of doing, right? We do care about ways of doing in mathematics, but we really care about ways of thinking Right, and the ways of thinking are the things that really undergird all of that and keep it from becoming this scattered collection of mishmash. Memorize as much as you possibly can, right? And so, in my eighth grade experience, there wasn't anything about ways of thinking; it was just ways of doing. But we got ways of doing, we got ways of thinking, and then finally, I put into this habits of thinking. Right, and so if we just settle for the ways of doing, then we're going to end up in. Situations where we don't recognize where the math actually exists. In a case, something I'll often use is I'll give an example and I'll ask adults, when have you ever actually done division of fractions in real life, like in a real life situation? And as you hear things back, it's kind of like, you know, actually, that's not a division of fractions. That's more like multiplying by one half or something like that. And and I go, well, why do you think that is? It's because you were taught division of fractions as strictly a way of doing disconnected from ways of thinking. So you never had the opportunity to see where it actually connects back in real life. So. And you're going to hear more about this as we talk today, right? <laughs> James is nodding. The ways of doing ways of thinking and habits of thinking are what we want to constantly bring back to the table when we're talking about mathematics.
1: Yeah, so true. And sometimes I like to think about the progression and, or evolution of a teacher's journey. When you talk about that math moment, and you brought up like how that influences your teaching now, but we have so many new teachers listening to this podcast. And I wonder what that progression like. Right out of the gate, when you went to become a high school teacher, was it like, I have this math moment that I remembered and I got to like change math instruction? Or is this like a gradual discovery that you were like, you know what, this is the way math education needs to be and is a change for you. I'm always interested in this change or where this happened because... I was a math teacher who taught math the way I was taught for many years. It was like I didn't have coming out of the gate going, I'm going to revolutionize everything. I was a very traditional teacher and it took me years to figure out what you have just said, but I'm curious about your
2: journey there. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12 setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar
3: now. Very similar, like out the gate as a young high school teacher, I didn't see it quite this way yet. And maybe one of the most pivotal moments for me, if I can have another math moment, is that all right? Can I have two? Yeah, sure. Yeah. But that means that James
2: gets another one next then. Okay. I think it's only fair.
3: (laughs) <laughs> James gets... All right. So another math moment was where my friend who was the physics teacher in the high school while I was the calculus teacher, he had fun. He was able to get minds thinking and engaging. And they because got they to, do math with units, they would say, right? They got to think about quantities, right? And units and things. I'm like, I'm going to make my classroom more of a place where the mind is engaged and where we're thinking about these things and we're making sense of things. Now that said, I read Peter book recently. And my takeaway was I wish I had seen like this stuff earlier in my career, and it wouldn't have taken me 15 years to get close to it, right? To try to figure it out on my own. And so, yeah,
2: I love that. And like John was mentioning as well. Yeah, we're always curious about that. And I think for many educators, it's a process, right? And we're on this journey and we continue on this journey. So the question for you, James, isn't maybe not necessarily a math moment, but I wonder, is there something more recently that maybe it's a new revelation, a new thought, maybe something that you bumped into that you'd like to share? I know I'm putting you on the spot here because we said we're going to skip right over James
0: at this part, but. What are you thinking? So I'm actually doing some work for a particular company somewhere in the world. I shan't mention countries and all the rest, but I'm looking at that curriculum. They've asked me, James, can you please make some videos to support this curriculum and make it human, which is an interesting challenge. They actually use the word human. So I looked at the materials and I have to say, I agree, they're somewhat inhuman right now. So it's 11th grade high school mathematics. And one of my jobs is to actually look at some of the exams that are given out by this particular state slash province slash Canton, I'm not going to say what, and I looked at these exams recently, and I was truly horrified. I mean, this is something like from 40 years ago. It's like Ted's experience. Divide these fractions. You're wrong. you can get the correct answers, but do a different method than I'm expecting. So it's that level of work there. And then I realized when I make these videos to support these you know, practice exams, I can actually talk about not just as much the mathematics, but also the psychology behind this. What's really going on? It's not actually a matter of memorizing all the jargon and so forth. You can actually just use your common sense, take a deep breath, step back. And figure out what do they mean by the terminal angle of the arm of, of an angle in standard position? I mean, there's some really wacko terminology, and I, as professional mathematician, have never used. But if you just sit back and think, okay, what's the context here? Oh, I'm doing trigonometry, what do they want to mean by the terminal point of an angle of an arm? And you realize, well, we're doing unit circles. It must be where the, I don't know, where the star is at the at the end of the arm. Bingo. So I realized that a lot of my work was not so much teaching the mathematics, but teaching the confidence to rely on your own personal common sense. Not to be, sorry, to have the agency to take charge of your own learning and doing, which is actually my greatest wish for the next generation. We actually teach the next generation the confidence to rely on their common sense, to be flexible in their thinking, to have self-agency and to take action. And even in the most rigid of boring environments of a mathematics exam still stuck from 14 decades ago of thinking, you can still find those moments. So... My videos are now sort of more like a, not just teaching the math and thinking behind the math and the habits of thinking, but also the meta-analysis. You can actually, you know, say, what's the author here want me to do, apparently? And I don't know this jargon, but I can figure out what they mean, because common sense will tell me if I just believe really it must have the commission to just think my way through it on that level, too.
1: Yeah, that's such a great kind of realization moment something that I've been trying to stress in my students for so long and we a couple of episodes ago we talked about like the four pillars of like starting a math class or getting kids into math class and one of them is having that confidence to be creative and in so many of our math classes that when I taught so long it was like thou shalt do it this way we talk about yay how many kids have ever heard the phrase or they were working at home with mom and dad, and mom and dad might be showing them how to do math, but then the kid says, but that's not the way the math teacher wants me to solve that problem. And it's like kids are all throwing their hands up and we say, like in our class, I want you to be creative. We want to hear your strategies before, say, the teacher strategy. So I'm glad you definitely brought that up. I know that's a big thing for me and a big thing that we all need to kind of remember
0: and emphasize. And that's what leads to a bit of a paradox in terms of how mathematics is still perceived to this day. For example, we're all meant to teach the long subtraction algorithm. The many parents expect their kids in fourth grade, fifth grade, whatever it is, to do long subtraction. But they've asked ask, well, do you really expect a shop clerk when working at your change to go 10.00 minus 9.87, carry the zeros, carry the ones, do long subtraction to work out your change? No. You want to teach the flexibility of thought. I'll get three more cents to get me to 9.90, 10 more cents gets me to $10, I owe you 13 cents. Now, I know that's not a realistic example anymore because cash register will do that for you. But my point is, there's a strange expectation of what math is as perceived by the general populace. Now, you must do this for my child. Whereas no one expects anyone in the real world to do it that way. Just as Ted was asking, when was the last time we actually divided a pair of fractions because of real practical need?
2: Coming back to like even just this idea and you had mentioned you had used the term like common sense, right? And I use the word intuition a lot, like regardless of what term you use, it's like You're utilizing your experience and your thinking right there is that common theme that we've heard from everyone here is thinking you're going to think about the problem and you're going to attack the problem based on what your gut, your intuition, your common sense is telling you is going to help you get to that answer versus going, you know, wait a second, let's write this down. You know, I would say a thousand and one minus 999. Right. I do that with parents a lot. And I say, like, how would you subtract that? And like most parents say, well, it's two. Well, like, what did you actually do? And it's like, well, you know that the difference is two that you thought about it. You didn't do it. Right. Yes, exactly. And imagine if I said you're wrong. And I was curious back with Ted's example, whether his creative approach was actually like, on track or was it like way off track or like my gut was sort of suggesting that maybe the teacher was just like, just shut down this idea completely because no, it didn't look and sound like the way that they had thought it should be.
3: I was probably flipping the wrong thing or something and trying to be minus
0: a little tweak. would have done it. Totally. I know this, this notion of showing your own work. I mean, it always it actually drives me bonkers. Show your work if it's interesting. I mean, there's nothing to say about the work you did because the answer is two, then just say two. But if, if the question is more interesting, then maybe you've got something to explain, say it.
1: Well, gentlemen, Kyle has talked about this experience that he had a few years ago. He had gone down to Arizona and he went to this symposium on proportional relationships. And the avid listeners of the podcast know that he and I talk about proportional reasoning all of the time. And he had such fond memories and wanted to share so much of what he's learned there. I'm curious myself about that proportional relationship symposium. You yeah, such a great group of educators, including yourselves. What inspired the formation of that group? And maybe take a moment to reflect on the thinking versus where your thinking is currently on that group.
3: Well, I think it started one night while I was helping my then middle school age daughter with her math homework. And we were doing something in her class, a unit analysis. You string these things together and you cancel them out and so forth. And and I'm like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this in this class? And then I flipped and it said, oh, you're doing standard such and such. Or so we're on the proportional relationships standard. I'm like, no, we're not. And then you dig into the textbook and you start to realize that they've taken all of this beautiful uniformity and unified thinking that goes into proportional relationships, and just sort of broken it out and stuck this in there is along with it, right? You're not thinking... She wasn't being asked to think about changing units based on proportional relationships. It was just based on chopping out words. And it was completely, just totally out of bounds, right? It was just like completely without meaning. Is this like put the millimeters on top and the millimeters on the bottom and they just divide out and boom, you've got a new number? Boom, right. And it's like, well, where's the proportional thinking in it, right? Where is that? And so when you say something is uh, proportional, you got to be able to talk about what that means. And I know that earlier, I had at one point in working with teachers doing professional development, stopped and asked myself that question. What do I really mean when I talk about a proportional relationship? And had to go try to figure out how myself would answer that. We started digging into the standards and we started to see right how you could misinterpret some of what's in there right now. It's set up for a really nice answer, but it's not necessarily clear right out the gate. And it wasn't necessarily super clear either in the progressions documents with regards to, that. it was still sort of disjointed at least as much as I thought, right? And so- started to dig around, look into the curriculum. It's really hard to find curriculum that's handling this well. We were running the equip reviews at Achieve and when I was there and trying to find exemplars of things. And we had a vacuum to sort of in that space. There wasn't a lot there. And so we started asking around. And James, we looped you in at some point. There was a meeting with Dick Stanley at ASU somewhere along the line where he gave a presentation and you and I wrote out there together. And then how do you remember it from that point on?
0: Well, I mean, this all fits into my general mission. Obviously, I'm a strange fellow here who to, wants to actually revolutionize math education in the K-12 world as we see it, because I want to declutter everything. I feel like we've got so much clutter in the K-12 world. And I think proportional reasoning has been particularly cluttered when it really is a beautiful chance to just teach students the confidence to rely on their wits and common sense, their thinking, as we've been saying all along. It's a beautiful example of that. Yeah, it's absolute, absolutely cluttered with jargon. Rate, unit rate, constant rate, scale, goes on and on and on. Just common sense, great chance to teach common sense. that actually makes me quite angry and sad that we've made we've taken away a beautiful story by making this three-year experience, at least in the US, grade six, seven, eight, chapters that go on and on for something that is really just a beautiful chance to engage in common sense thinking. And what a great meta lesson for the kids. Engage in common sense and trust your fabulous wits. You've got wonderful brains. Here's a chance to use them.
2: Hey there, math moment makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, and I remember quite vividly that the first time we all came together and listening to the conversation, the conversation initially, it was like, we went down this rabbit hole of like, we started with, Hey, what is a proportional relationship? But then we went to like, what's a quantity like, and we went through all of these things. And what I realized in that moment, and I can only speak for myself was, wow, I've never really thought about any of this. And that was from my secondary teacher background. I was sort of new on this journey as a K to 12 math consultant and coach. And that experience for me was a huge eye opener of how much is going on and how much we don't think about. And we talk about intentionality a lot on the show now. Back then, what that taught me anyway was that, wow, I say and do a lot of things in my math class that I don't even know if I have clarity around. And yet I'm using these terms interchangeably at times. And of course, we could dive into proportional relationships and all of those terms that are directly related to proportional relationships as well, when I'm like, wow, I actually don't have a clear differentiator and the one for proportional relationships that pops in is listening to people try to define what a ratio is versus what a rate is, right? And different parts of the world have very different views on that as well. So for me, that was such a huge eye-opener and it got me thinking and I continue to think about a lot of these ideas and how so much of the elementary math we do connects to this work we do in proportional relationships, proportional reasoning, and so on and so forth. So I'm wondering for you two gentlemen, like, what is a proportional relationship to you? And has that evolved since that meeting, or maybe since before that meeting? Like, how has your own personal journeys with proportional relationships grown over time? We
3: didn't leave that meeting with everything locked up, not at all. You didn't solve all the world's problems? <laughs> we didn't know. And nor is there ever going to be complete agreement on it. I don't know if you remember, but I seem to recall like even in the first few minutes of that symposium, it was like a lot of folks didn't seem to think there might even be a problem. But about 15, 20 minutes in, all of a sudden we were all like, oh yeah, we're all talking about different things.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And I'll be honest because I only really knew James at that point, like James sort of invited me into this world. So I sort of just sat and was an observer. I was like, I'm going to just stay quiet on this one because you could see that there was some heels getting dug in, and you could see how that would be true, especially for people who their life's work is mathematics, and whether they had thought about it deeply or maybe it just hadn't occurred to them. You could see how people were at very different places in their own understanding.
3: Yeah, and then even in the post that meeting, right, we all got together again. A few of us got together again: Phil Darrow, April Strom, and, and continued to Dick Stanley to continue to try to. Chisel down how we might talk about and present this in a way that makes mathematical sense and pedagogical sense at the same time. And James, <laughs> you're thinking. He's been quiet no. over so, there.
0: I'm very quiet. Cool. You just saw me go fetch something from my cabinet to my rice, so I'll explain what I fetched in just. Look like
2: an avocado.
0: It does look like an avocado, but it's not. Could be related. <laughs> it's an emu egg. <laughs> you bet it is. Oh, you've okay. It's an emu egg. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew <laughs> it. Of course, Carl knew it was an emu egg every good Canadian knows what a new egg looks like. <laughs> so, so has my thinking changed? So I hadn't thought deeply about this topic in the sense that I've really focused my K-12 world chiefly on high school mathematics. So proportional reasoning hasn't really come up as a core topic. This tends to be the middle school arena in the US, starting grade five, grade six, going up to about grade eight. The only place that really came up for me as a high school teacher when I was teaching high school was uh, the formula Y equals KX represents a proportional relationship, and then off we go, because algebra is under the belt, and there's no intuition behind it. So it's only with this thinking that Ted sort of brought me into that really made me think, okay, let me do my usual tangent thing. Let's try to strip away all the clutter. What's the kernel of the idea that's really going on here? Those sorts of things, year-long processes, it takes a long while to really cut down But what's just the key story. And I would tell you, I, the key story is really... Not much, to be honest, which sounds very insulting, but here's what I mean. I mean, I'll take the standard textbook problem, which says, suppose I figure out I can make 10, well, let's make it 33 omelets with 10 emu eggs. So here's an emu egg, and I recognize I can make 33 omelets with 10 of these emu eggs. Great. And then sort of the natural question you might ask in a textbook is, well, how many omelets can I make with 20 emu eggs or 100 emu eggs? If I want to make seven omelets, how many emu eggs would I need? And you realize, okay, there's the textbook questions, of the culmination of all the theory that we should go through sixth graders, seventh graders with. And you think about it, okay? What's going on? I've just given you a scenario. There's emu eggs and there's omelets. A count of emu eggs and a count of omelets. So there's two quantities going on, and their quantities could change. I can imagine they change. I can change the number of emu eggs. I can change the number of omelets. So things can change. In fact, they're just changing depending on each other. They sort of linked. I mean, if I change the number of emu eggs I use, I will change the number of omelets I can make, and vice versa. So there's two linked quantities. So once I realized that, I say, hang on, common sense tells me my real-world experience There's something more going on. They're kind of linked in a very nice way. And I find they kind of said it already. So with 10 emu eggs, if I can make 33 omelets. If I double the number of emu eggs, I bet I can make double the number of omelets. Common sense tells me that, 66 omelets. Or if I halve the number of emu eggs, I bet I can halve the number of omelets I can make. Here's math. I can't do that. That's 16 and a half omelets now. Or if I quadruple the number of eggs I use, I'll quadruple the number of omelets I make. They're scaling in a very nice way. If I scale one quantity up by some factor K, whatever that number is, the other quantity has to scale as well. They're linked by scaling in tandem, I like to call it. And that's it. That's it. There is a proportional relationship. It's a proportional reasoning. In fact, the reasoning goes now, suppose I want to change the number of omelets I make. Well, let's think. 10 emu eggs, 33 omelets. 20 emu eggs, I so double, 66 omelets. By quintuple now, 100 emu eggs, 5 times 66. That's 330, I think, omelets. 100 in your eggs, 330 omelets. Oh, let's break it down to one in your egg. One in your egg would be divided by 103.3 omelets. Oh, one in your egg makes 3.3 omelets. Oh, let me go to high school math, like I did as a high school teacher. What if I scale by a factor n? For n in your eggs, I t- increase the number in your eggs by a factor of n. The number of omelets I make increased by a factor of n as well. So n times one in your eggs, n in your eggs makes 3.3 times n omelets. There's my formula. So, whoa, that's it. And I can answer any question you want about the number of omelets I can make, how many eggs I'll need, or how many eggs I've got, how many omelets I can make. Every standard textbook question is now just there by common sense. The young students can do this. My high school students can do this. I don't even need to mention rate, unit rate, ratio. In fact, I've used none of those words. Common sense solves everything a textbook asks you of that issue right there. All, I mean, So the point was, we stripped it down. You just need a real world scenario with two quantities that you can measure that you can imagine these quantities can change in their measurements. How the eggs can change, the number one, they can change. And they're linked in a very nice way that they scale in tangent. You know, triple one quantity, the other one triples as well. Scaling the one by fifth, the other one scales down by fifth as well. Bingo. And then common sense will lead you through anything you might want to know about those two quantities. Done.
2: And the scaling in tandem, by the way, which we were joking over many of our symposium meetings, we called it scaling in tandem, but... Either way, you know what, though? We use that terminology in so many of our Math Moments units now that I've had this experience over these past few years. And you'd have to remind me, was it 2018 when we began these meetings? Maybe it was 17. I'm trying to remember. I think it was before that, yeah. Yeah. So whatever the, it was, that really has influenced, especially when I'm working with educators, working with younger students. So I know that our work was sort of in the middle grades, kind of working in the secondary. We realized that high school students oftentimes didn't have this fundamental flexibility. It was like, again, they weren't given the opportunity to use their intuition. They weren't given the opportunity to use common sense when it came to proportionality. And what I see when we're working with younger students is this difference between additive thinking and multiplicative thinking. So James, you were highlighting this, like this doubling, this having, tripling, thirding. There's students where when you see them sort of entering into this world and they're stuck adding eggs and adding omelets or subtracting, you can clearly identify.
1: Well, every time I add an egg, I add 33 omelets.
2: Right, and it's like they're attempting to scale in tandem, yeah <laughs> but they're not there yet, but I'm thinking of from like a teacher move perspective, like if teachers are aware of this, they can be identifying that, and they can be formatively assessing as students are doing this thinking and doing this work to help them along and maybe select different quantities that might make it a little bit more attainable for them. So instead of 10 and 33, maybe our quantities are 2 and 3. Whatever that number might be, that's going to help students kind of move along that
0: journey. May I point out a potential danger then that actually reinforces the, the worry you have? So I see in the curriculum all the time that we insist that t- students make tables of data, one in UX, two in x, three in UX, so on. And then you see, you're forcing the students to think additively right then and there. I add, an egg, I add an egg, I add an egg, and the consequence of proportional reasoning is that actually the count of omelets will go up by constant amount as well. But that is a consequence of what the true story is about. You notice, I didn't actually go to one egg, two eggs. I went 33, then I went to 66, I went to 100, I went down to five. I went all over the place, as the natural human brain does. I don't organize in a natural way. And yes, you can find consequences, like the additive thinking does occur, but that's distracts from the story. And if students are still struggling between additive thinking, and multiplicative thinking, you've just born some additive thinking to muddy the stories that have multiplicative thinking. I say don't, <laughs> I mean, potentially, don't do organized tables. I mean, sure, organize your work in a, in a nice rose if you like, but you don't have to do one egg, two eggs, three eggs, do 10 eggs, do five eggs, then do 20 eggs, and do 100
1: eggs. A lot of the visuals that we're putting together with our problem-based lessons is when we scale in tandem, we show a number line or a double number line. And what are your thoughts on showing and organizing your thinking along a number line to show? Because the table, I agree with you in the table that the sense when you just start stacking them, there's no actual like... Like I'm trying to capitalize on the physical distance sometimes when we're looking at these numbers. Yeah, spatial, right? Exactly. And when you just put numbers in a table, you don't see that or feel it. And when you put them along a number line, I feel like you can see when I double this, all of a sudden I have to double this. But if I go up by three and that's not double, then it's a little bit more clear to see when I'm doubling
0: and when I'm adding. So I'll give my response and I'll stop talking as Ted should be really shining here, but I like the double line you're showing on the screen right now because that's an actual double line that's in the context of the problem. You're showing a stack of books and you're seeing how the heights changes side by side. What I worry about is when you make it an abstract notion of a double number line, like most textbooks do, they'll draw a horizontal one, another horizontal one. It's not at all obvious why things should always keep lining up because you're actually relying on yet another proportional relationship that distances from the origin, scale, and tandem that happen to match the scaling tandem that goes on for your physical scenario. It's a double layer of abstraction. It's sort of not obvious. So what I love about what you're doing is keep the double number lines true to the problem you're dealing with right now. And then it's like, well, duh, common sense. Now I can see what's going on. I can see adding three books is not doubling. I mean, going from five books to 10 books by adding five books is not as not the right thinking here. And actually it kind of is.
3: Totally agree with you there, James. I was thinking, yeah, the double number line without any sort of quantities or relationships of the quantities or thinking about why the quantities behave the way they do is just becoming another way of doing
2: yeah, and you know what too I think as well it's like I'm seeing this sort of concrete to abstraction sort of continuum. I'm not suggesting that we move along it and never go back concrete or anything like that, but it's making sure that they're not proceduralizing. The model too quickly, right? So like they look at this double number line, they look at a table, like you were saying there, James, and it's almost like, Oh, I see table, I do this versus I actually created this model because it actually helped me with my thinking, or it helped me model my thinking so someone else can understand it. And that for me is a huge aha as well, is that I realized that even when I was using math models in my own classroom, I tended to sort of like try to teach kids, here's what you do. When you see this, you use this model and this is where you go versus letting the thinking sort of take you. And I really like your idea of, you had created essentially a table, you created a a ratio table with your emu eggs, but you just did it in what we call like a non-traditional sort of like intuitive sort of way. And it's going to look maybe out of order and it's going to look maybe messy. But you think about everything in the world. And we talk about this a lot on the podcast now that how come math class is the only place where we don't promote like doing work and doing all your thinking and then making like a better sort of final copy later, right? Like an essay never starts as an essay. It starts as like a jumbled mess of ideas all over a page. And that's, what math class should probably look a whole lot like too. And then we can organize it and present it and share it with your math community. But I feel like we're always so concerned about students doing everything so neatly and organized and correctly the first time.
3: And one of the things, and if the listeners haven't seen the paper yet that we're going to point to before the end of this, is we don't ever, in this whole analysis, this whole approach, we don't ever set up and solve a proportion, right? Because that's not what we're getting at because we're trying to, really build up that way of thinking about quantities that scale in tandem with each other in such a way that later on, that's fine. Bring it in, bring in the way of doing. But right now we want to make sure that you're focusing on the way of thinking. The payoff is huge. I mean, we didn't even touch yet on uh, percentages and how this just makes happy times of working with all the different kinds of percentage problems. Happy times. Yeah. I love it.
2: <laughs> John, where are we heading next there? I got all distracted here. <laughs> You've been throwing stuff up on the screen. I know, and- I'm looking, I'm getting all excited over here. I'm sharing all kinds of visuals here. You know what? Let's talk a little bit more about that paper actually, and I'll bring it up. I'll put a visual up. We'll also include the link in the notes. Maybe we'll go back to you there, Ted, through this work. We had been sort of really trying to, create some clarity. right? In our first presentation we had done a few years back, we used the word muddy, like the muddy waters, the muddiness of proportional relationships. And really what we're trying to do is create at least some sort of clarity so that both educators and hopefully in turn students have a better sense of what's going on and really bringing to light the beauty we're talking about that is proportional relationships instead of using the staircase for unit conversions or creating a proportion, looking at ratios and always setting up a proportion and cross multiplying or whatever the trick may be. Tell us a little bit about the paper and sort of where we went with that paper, and I'll pull it up and ensure we have the link in the show notes for those who want to dive in.
0: Okay. Ted just raised his eyebrows. Okay. So let's see. I mean, I think the paper, what's the paper called? It's called decluttering. A proportional relationships relationships decluttered at last. So the mission is to declutter Mm -hmm. all that thinking. So it really just starts off exactly how I started with my emu egg here. Can you recognize, you're in a scenario, some physical situation has A, two quantities that can be measured, the quantities can be vary or can be imagined to vary in the measures. The two coins are linked in some way. If you change one, the other has to change in reaction and vice versa. And four, that the key thing is, are they actually scaling in tandem? And once you've got that, common sense will prevail. And as Ted said, we went through examples. Like, for example, if I tell you 80% of a quantity is equal to 120, and your brain says 80% of a quantity equals 120, it's pretty abstract. Well, I guess I'm talking about 80% of something, and I'm also telling 120 things, I guess, I can now see my mind's eye. I'm talking about two different quantities: a percentage amount and the actual quantity, whatever I'm measuring. And my brain says, "Oh, okay. If I halve the percentage, I'll have half the amount. So 40% goes with 60. Oh, then I'm going to quarter that. 10% goes with 15. Therefore, 100% goes with 150. I mean, I'm just like scaling in tandem right there. I recognise scaling in tandem that situation right there. Or taxes: for every dollar earned, I decide to give 43 cents to the government. In which case, if I earn $10, I give 10 times 43 cents to the government. I get you just another situation of scaling in tandem. So the paper is about really identifying that. And then it goes through the language. Then what's the standard curriculum language? What does rate mean? Unit rate ratios, all these things about lines through the origin, all the stuff there. We just try to make sense of that. It really does fit with this just common sense thinking, even the word scale. If I give you a map and I say the scale is 1 to 500 on the map, I see it's two trees on the map that are three centimetres apart. Oh, I guess scale means one centimetre on the map goes with 500 centimetres in real life. Therefore, three centimetres on the map goes with 1,500 centimetres in real life. I'm in scaling with tandem. Again, common sense thinking in all those scenarios. So here, so on screen right now, we're going through one long, long, long worked example about buying Kupi dolls before we've even done any curriculum work. You can just launch right into it like I did with the emu eggs and omelettes. It's just Follow your nose, all fall into place. And then if you have to teach all the jargon and language, because you're in a situation where you have to teach all the lu- jargon and language, there's now context for it. It'll actually make sense. And nothing to memorize, actually, because you always fall back on, well, I guess I have to answer this question figure out what's going on here. If it's scanning in tandem, just nut my way through it. Things will fall into place. Off we go. But here's the lovely thing about this. It's the chance to teach kids the confidence to rely on common sense thinking let me give you some scenarios that are quite questionable i mean if i tell you for example it takes 22 minutes for seven socks on my mind to dry how long will it take 14 socks to dry Then you realize what my real world experience is well it won't take double the amount of time for 14 socks to dry seven socks they'll just all still dry in seven minutes five long i said 23 minutes that's not scaling in tandem so if you have to like rely on your actual common sense What's the danger, if you're thinking too hard, everything will go down the rabbit hole. If you're going to go to the line, well, what is what I mean by dry? What do I mean by measurement of minutes? What do I mean by this, this, and this? Of course, you'll go down the rabbit holes, but at some point, you've got to rely on a sense of the real world and how to make sense of that real world. Then you can start becoming physicists and say, well, what do I mean by unit? What do I mean by quantity? When I say one yard is the same as three feet, actually, I guess I'm doing scaling in tandem again. I'm just giving different names for units. Therefore, two yards is the same as six feet, and 60 yards is the same as times that by 30, what it was. Beat off we go all that unit conversion stuff actually is scaling in tandem again and there's really nothing new it's just actually the same one idea over and over again so to me the point of the paper is it's the same one idea over and over and over again over and like over and over again we do it for three years the same one idea over and over again and we never say what the actual idea is so we're saying (laughs) I'd say the point of the paper is
2: well and i love it because it's like we do it for three years but i feel like we haven't been doing it for three years right we've been sort of like kind of doing some stuff but again going back to ted's point sort of doing the doing and sort of taking these ideas and again teaching them as siloed ideas, right? Today, we're going to do unit conversions. And it's like this whole other thing that we sort of paint it up. And we say like this big experience is going to be this whole thing you've never seen before. When in reality, it's like, well, actually, no, you've been doing all of this all along over here. And it's just such a beautiful way to make it connected. And while it is big, and it's massive, that is such a positive thing for the learner, right? To be able to say like, wow, holy smokes, there's a lot that I can do all based on the same fundamental ideas. And I look at this paper as a really great opportunity for educators like myself, who three, four, five years ago, I was not necessarily doing a great job at understanding Proportional relationships and how complex they are, like complex, but in a good way, complex, right? Because I could take that complexity and I could use that to make math class feel more intuitive, but it does force me to do a little bit of my own learning along the way as well.
1: I feel like we want to make sure that I think hit home for them. and What I mean is when I'm thinking back to my old self and teaching proportional reasoning in my, say, ninth grade class. And I'm imagining the textbook and the textbook has, you call these naked problems, right? So it's just, they're contextless problems. They're just, you've got this fraction, right? You've got a proportion, you've got a fraction. There's no emu eggs. No, there's no eggs. So it's like, there's a fraction, there's other fraction, where there's a missing value. One of those fractions, sometimes on the top, sometimes on the bottom, and we cross multiply to solve, right? It was like, there's this solving proportion section of the textbook, but always starts with naked problems. And then at the end, we put in context. So what I'm hearing for you guys is, because I don't think we ever like physically said it, is that if a teacher is like, look at I'm going to redesign my proportional unit, my proportional relations unit in one of these grades and they're pulling from the textbook and the textbook is doing that. We're saying, hey, you got to start with context. Is that a no-brainer?
0: So I'm going to be really, really bold. I mean, I'm going to say, sorry, so much of the curriculum is designed nowadays, teach stuff kids that they need to know later on, which is not how the human brain works. Either do it when you need it later on or do the later on now. In fact, I'm going to offer do the later on now. I say, go to the hardest problem at the end of that textbook chapter and present that first and say, what are we going to do? <laughs> Have a messy conversation that probably gets nowhere. And that's okay. And then just, you know, practice just trying stuff. Well, I guess we've got, we've got EMUX. Let's just start saying the obvious things. We've got omelets. Start saying the obvious things. Let me just start listing obvious things. And you'll start st- having a conversation that goes from the obvious things to state to the even like more subtle things to start stating. And I bet you'll start making some progress. And then you'll start seeing the context of all the things the chapter starts with. And then if you actually want to teach cross more which I say, well, I've got my own personal thoughts about that. But at least you now have a context and a place for it. It's not a be-all and end-all. I mean, no one in the right mind would cross-multiply. And you're not really cross multiplying. I don't know what that means. you multiply multiplying both sides by one number and then multiply both sides again by a different number and you just put a fraction on both sides. That's what you're really doing.
2: What I'm hearing as well, and then I want to flip to Ted and sort of get your thoughts on this as well. I'm hearing this idea that it's really hard. It's really hard to use your common sense or your intuition when there's nothing to really be thinking about, unless you really under like if I really understand fractions, which most students tend to not really understand fractions by the same connection to proportional relationships, like same downfalls that we've traditionally taught fractions and introduced fractions. But if there is some context, if there is something worth solving, then I can at least take that and I can use my background experience with that idea and use it. To, again, naturally work within proportional relationships. Ted, what are your thoughts there in terms of like teachers are listening and they're going like, okay, this seems awesome. Any tips, any thoughts or wonders for our friends?
3: Yeah. So we often talk about like meaningful mathematics discourse, right? Having meaningful Teaching practices, mathematical discourse, meaningful. You got to stop and ask, what does that mean? Right? (laughs) What does that mean? Well, you can't have meaningful mathematics discourse without focusing on mathematical meanings. You have to come back and you have to think about what it is the thing that you're saying means. For too long, we all just said proportional relationships and we all assumed we meant the same thing. We quickly found out we did not all mean the same thing. And so the question is now, well, what other places are there like that? You talked about fractions, right? And so we've got uh, one project that I'm working on right now. We're calling Formative Conversation Starters. We're trying to get into how are students thinking about these things? And so we ask questions like, is a fraction one number or two numbers? Can you access ways of thinking that can make those things work in your head? We ask you, hey, how do you think about division? What ways do you have to think about division? And then let's ask you about division of fractions. Are your two answers different? Between those two things, what ways of thinking, what are the meanings that you're bringing to the table? That's where the meaningful mathematical discourse has to start.
1: Totally. Gentlemen, we've had such a great time chatting about this, and I know that we could probably keep going and we could probably fill another hour or however long. I definitely want to meet up with you guys in the future as long as we can start to get together in physical face-to-face environments and conferences. I can't wait for that to come about again here in Canada. It hasn't happened yet, but before we say our goodbyes, I'm wondering for each of you, what big idea or takeaway way, would you want to leave with our listeners as like a
0: final thought? Yeah. Let's start with James. I I kind of like what we said earlier. Start with the hardest question at the end of the chapter, at the beginning of the chapter with the kiddos. Do that. See how it goes. (laughs) I like that. Good (laughs) tip.
3: (laughs) For me, it's slow down and ask yourself and your students, what do you mean when you say this? There's too many things that we assume that we all mean the same thing and we don't.
2: I love it. And you know what? Hearing both of those things, I think, is going to be really helpful. I hope that friends who are listening to this episode, I know that they're going to take a lot away from it. But me personally, even just hearing both of you reiterate those two things, I think about it. And Ted, you just mentioned this idea of having these conversations. And really, again, the thinking emerges, right? As soon as, hey, you take that harder problem and you start with it thinking happens. And hey, if we ask each other, what do you mean, when you say blank, we have to do some thinking. And once again, I think that really drives home a huge idea, something that I know for many years, not enough thinking was happening in my own classroom. And that's been a journey that I've been on for many years now. And I'll definitely take those two thoughts into the future and continue to work on this journey here. So thank you both gentlemen for hanging out with us. It's awesome. I know it's only virtual these days. It seems like forever since we've all been together. But again, like John says, crossing fingers that we are coming around the bend here it has to be, right? We have to be. <laughs> I don't know what else to say here, but thank you both for coming on the podcast, sharing your thoughts with the world as you always do. And I'm sure we'll get you both on again in the future. James,
0: He's you're going to just try to, to run going. away with it, right? All right, okay. I'm going to work on it then. no right, guys, thank you so much. A real honor, real pleasure the work you're doing for the world. is just tremendous. And thank you so much for all the good you're doing in the math world. Really am um, touched to be here. So thank you. I
3: agree. Thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen, and
2: have a great rest of your evening and we'll talk soon. Well, as always, my friends, and you heard it, we are so excited to have welcomed James and Ted onto the show. We're definitely going to have to have both back on the show, uh, maybe together, maybe apart. But one thing I must say is that with every episode, I take away something new. And I've had the opportunity to co-plan much of this work in proportional relationships and co-learn with these two individuals, as well as that symposium, that group of educators who joined us for the the uh, proportional relationship symposium. So my wonder to you is what, is the new learning that you're taking away? Today, one of the big themes I heard was thinking. It really came down to thinking what we're doing in the classroom. Are we thinking about the math content that we're teaching? Do I fully understand the math content we're teaching? It's okay if you don't, but you need to be thinking about it and thinking about the intentionality and maybe have that discussion with your students. Make sure that you're doing something to reflect on that learning so that it sticks. So create a plan for yourself to take action on something that you've learned here in this episode today. Right.
1: And what you could be doing as well is uh, reach out because you are not alone here. We have a vibrant community of math mom makers here to support you. You can reach that group over on Twitter at MakeMathMoments or on Instagram or in our Facebook group Math Moment Makers K to 12. Get in over there. We've got lots of folks chatting and answering
2: questions and assisting. Yes, and my friends, if you weren't laughing when James pulled out an actual emu egg and put it on the screen, that's because you're probably not watching this on YouTube. Head over to the YouTube channel, hit that subscribe button, hit the like button, leave us a comment, and remember, we have weekly videos being released with tips, tricks, and a little bit of guidance a little bit of inspiration for you in your own math classroom. So do us that huge solid, hit that subscribe button, and let's make sure you see us over on YouTube. Yep.
1: Show notes and links to resources and complete transcripts from this episode can be found and downloaded over at MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode
2: 167. Well, my math moment maker friends, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us.
1: And hey, here's a big high five for you.